Now, friends, we have seen that this man Job is being made a test case. Shall we say it? He's a guinea pig. And Satan has challenged God. He says, this man, you put a hedge around him. He has everything. And you begin to take those things away from him, and he'll curse you to your face. He casts a slur upon mankind and upon God a blasphemy. And the intelligences of heaven must have cringed and certainly blushed when they heard this highest creature that God had created, who's now fallen, cast this slur upon Almighty God. Now, God permitted Satan to get at this man, Job. And he began to move into this man's life, and we saw that he took one thing after another away from him to break him down. And I think that probably I ought to pause right here before we come to this third chapter where we were listening last night to the complaint of Job and see here the background of all of this again. The very interesting thing is that you and I today belong to a lost race. It's difficult to think that you and I living down here among a bunch of liars and cutthroats and thieves and murderers. And somebody says, but I'm not like that. I'm afraid that you are, and I'm afraid all of us are. We belong to that kind of race. And that's the reason God can't take us to heaven as we are. After all, if God took the world to heaven as it is today, you wouldn't have anything but just the world all over again. Now, I don't know about you, but I see no reason to duplicate it. And God apparently sees no reason, and therefore he's not taking us to heaven as we are. That's the reason the Lord Jesus had to say, to a refined, polished, religious Pharisee, ye must be born again. Now, if it's any comfort to any of us, we're all in the same boat. And we talk about normal behavior today. The psychologist is great at that. And how in the world does he arrive at normal behavior? Well, what he does, he plots a chart. And where the majority of people are, that's normal. One end is abnormal, the other end is supernormal. And that's where the few are at either end. But who said the middle is normal? I don't think it is. We're all in sin today. Now, this creature called man is frail, he's feeble, and he's faulty. It's easy to upset the equilibrium of any man. It can happen to any of us. It's easy to depart from the pattern, to tip the scale. And someone has said that one out of ten people spend time in a mental institution. It's hard for me to believe that's true, but that's the statistic given to me. Now, God has placed about man certain props to make man stand straight and upright. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it like this in Ecclesiastes 7.29. God has made man upright but they seek out many devices, many inventions. Now, he's clothed man with an armor of protection, a security, if you please. God has given to all men, godly and ungodly, certain aids. He makes it rain on the just and unjust. The wicked get just as much sunshine and air to breathe, and their health is just as good as those that are the godly those that are Christ today. Now, the devil knows that if he can get to a man, remove the props, strip man of every vestige of aid, take away his soft garment of security, take away his blanket, he can upset man and turn him upside down, destroy his morale, rearrange his thinking, brainwash him. And therefore, God's placed about a man... Hedge to keep the devil away. Now, sometimes the devil is permitted to crash the gate, and he'll strip a man down to his naked soul. And God permitted the devil to brainwash Job. The book of Job presents the problem. 
states the stripping of a man's soul, not the solution. You must go to the New Testament for the real answer there suggested in this book. It's sort of like the algebra book I had at school. The problems were in the front. The answers were in the back of the book. And the Bible is like that. You get the problem here. You turn over to the New Testament, you get the answer. Now, the Old Testament, in many respects, is a very unsatisfactory book, by the way. Nothing actually is solved there. And as someone has put it, the Old Testament is expectation. The New Testament is realization. Now, just watch for a moment. As far as we've come now, the devil has been brainwashing Job. He strips Job of every vestige of covering. Let's look at that for a moment, because it's going to help us now as we enter this dialogue that Job has with his friends. One of the basic needs of man is material substance. You see, an animal is already born with a coat on. You and I, when we're little, somebody, especially our parents, have to get us a coat. And later on, you and I have to buy a coat, food and clothing and shelter. Animal can stand out in the weather. Man can't. And therefore, man needs to have barns and flocks and herds and lands, and he needs to have things about him, needs to have a home. And we're told in Scripture, he's given us richly all things to enjoy. And God wants man to enjoy the things that he's put in this world. Although the curse of sin is on it, God has provided for man in a very wonderful way. Now, physical things actually can be spiritual blessings. Prosperity is God's gift. And there's nothing wrong in building bigger barns. The danger lies in depending upon these things, leaning upon them as if that's all there is to life. And actually, I think that today the prosperity and the affluence of the United States has been giving us a bad conscience for a long time. And we've spent billions of dollars out yonder passing out crumbs in order that we might enjoy what we've got. And it hasn't been to any avail because all we're doing is saving a bad conscience. Now, many articles today have been written comparing us to the rest of the world. Well, our gadgets and our conveniences and our comforts actually have been creating a prison for us. I'm amazed today during a holiday weekend how everybody tries to get away from their push buttons. They try to get away from their electric blanket, their TV set and from all of the nice gadgets they have in the kitchen and go way out in the desert out here in California. They beat it for the desert or down at the seashore. They want to rough it, they say. What do they mean? Well, they feel like they're in prison. And actually, the Christian needs to get alone to take an inventory. Am I trusting in the things or am I trusting in God? Now, Job lost all. He went from prosperity to poverty. And Job was moved, but he wasn't removed from the foundation. Then the second thing that happened to him that God permitted and the devil did, he took away his loved ones. And you and I need loved ones to prop us up. When we're a little child, a little baby, that's the reason that the Lord makes babies so attractive, so we cuddle them and hug them. How wonderful it is. My, the greatest thrill I ever had in my life was to hold in my arms my first child. And I lost that child. And the greatest thrill I have today is holding that little old grandson. God's made us that way. Now, when you begin to grow up, the child goes to the parents for love and sympathy. Hurts his little finger, and he runs in and has his mama kiss it. And now you know that doesn't do it a bit of good. Sure helps, so. Now, without these, the child develops conflicts and complexes. And the psychologist, I think, is right about that. And as a child grows to adulthood, into the teens, a dear lady called me the other day, and she's disturbed because her two teenage boys don't listen to her anymore. Well, she hasn't discovered that God made them that way. 
because he's getting ready to push the little eaglets out of the nest, be on their own. And then one day, love's transferred to somebody else, and then transferred to one's own children. Now, Job lost his children, seven sons, three daughters. And then there's something else that is a great factor in the well-being of man, that's health. And today, I notice in the paper, so many suicides. And they say so-and-so was in ill health. But there's countless numbers, though, of saints today that are laid aside, bedridden. And those folk probably have learned to trust God in a way that you and I have not learned to trust God. And so the devil took away the health of Job. That was a great blow to him. And then he moved and took away the love and sympathy of a companion. Now, God gave Adam a helpmeet. And a helpmeet means the other half of him, the responder, the other part of him. And I think God has a rib for every man. That is, he has a wife. And God has instituted marriage for the welfare and happiness of man. And many a man who stands at the forge of life today, faithful and strong, and he faces the battle and the daily grind, and he's brave and true. But when he goes home, he pillows his head on the breast and the lap of a wife who understands him and maybe even sobs out his soul. No Samson was ever weaker in the lap of a Deliah than the man who has a good wife, and he's able to pillow his head upon her. Oh, how wonderful that is. Now, Job's lost the sympathy of his wife. We've seen that. Now, his friends have come to mourn with him, and he's going to find out that they were just a mirage on the desert. When he saw them coming, he thought it was an oasis, but it was a mirage. And he finally calls them miserable comforters. We're going to see why. Now, what else can the devil do to Job? Well, he's destroyed the whole set of values. And now he moves in, and this is the thing we want to watch now. He loses his sense of the worth and dignity of his own personality. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? God pity young people today that throw away their life for a little pill are to please a group of evil-minded companions. It's only God today that really attaches a value to man. The Lord Jesus said, You are of more value than sparrows. You know why? Because he died for us. And that's how much we're worth, the blood of Christ. And it was during the Dark Ages that a very brilliant scholar fell sick and was picked up on the highway And the doctors thought he was a bum. And they began to talk. They said, shall we operate on this worthless creature? And they were speaking in Latin. And Muretus was the scholar. And he understood them. He raised up and answered them in Latin. And he says, do not call a creature worthless for whom Christ died. And so the devil tries to cause us to lose the worth and dignity of our own personality. And then Job is going to lose his sense of the justice of God. And he'll become critical and cynical before it's over. And we need to recognize here that there's a great deal in the book of Job that is inspired. It's all inspired. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. This is what I mean. The devil was not inspired to tell a lie to Eve. But the record that tells us that he lied when he did it, that record is what is inspired. And some people say just because it's in the Bible, that means that it's true. Let's find out who says it. And in the book of Job, we need to be very careful about that. Now he lost also his sense of the love of God. And finally... He could cry out, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Well, we'll have to go to the New Testament and we'll look there before we finish the book of Job in order to get the answer. For there is one God and one mediator 
between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's the answer to Job's cry. Oh, that there were a daysman to stand between us. Job said, if there was only someone that could take hold of the hand of God and take hold of my hand and bring us together. And there is someone today. Now, I've spent time on this because it's very, very important, friends, to get this background to understand the dialogue that's going on. Now, listen to him. And the first discourses of Job. And listen to the heartbreak of this man. And I hope it'll give you something to think about. After this, opened Job's mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There's a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness, let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Now, this is beautiful speech, by the way, very flowery. But when you add it all up and you boil it down and strain it, what he says is this, I wish I hadn't been born. That's what he's saying. I just wish I hadn't been born. And how many times have you said that? Well, I'm of the opinion that many of us have said that, especially way back when we were young. You remember something disappointed us? We said, I wish I hadn't been born. Well, that's what Job is saying, only saying it in poetic language. Verse 6, As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day, who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day, because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me or go before me? Or why the breasts that I should suck? You see, this man, really, he's saying it, and he's saying it loud and clear. I wish I hadn't been born. And that, very interesting enough, never solves any of the problems of this life, friends. Just wishing that you hadn't been born. I wish that you could die. You'll never die by wishing it. And you can't undo the fact you've been born. So you're wasting your time doing that. No one ever gets hurt, though, doing this, other than it does let off a lot of steam. It does that for Job now, because these friends are not really going to be friendly to him from now on. Verse 14. Now, he has pictured death here as annihilation. All sleep equally, kings and counselors of the earth which build desolate places for themselves, great pyramids, great monuments, but they're on the same par. And he complains that this oblivion is denied him. Actually, there are two things that Job is saying in this third chapter. He wishes he'd never been born. And having been born, he wished he'd died at birth. Those are the two things, and he finds no relief, therefore. And it's quite dramatic, and this is wonderful language that you read through here. And I begin reading at verse 14. "...with kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, are with princes that had gold, who fill their houses with silver, are as a hidden untimely birth, I had not been as infants which never saw light. He says, I wish I'd been stillborn, that I hadn't come into this world. He says, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. In other words, he pictures death as being preferred to life. Now, he's come pretty far down, as you can see. He says, the small and great are there. 
and the servant is free from his master. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul. He said, life is such a burden. I don't want to live it. I want to die. And he goes on, verse 21, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures. Why, this man Job says, I'd welcome death more than a miner digging for gold. And when the miner finds the gold, it's a shout, you know. And Job says, well, if I could just die, I'd want to shout about that. And listen to him, verse 23, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God hath hedged in? For my sign cometh before I eat, my roarings are poured out like the waters. This poor man is in a desperate, desolate condition. Now, he says, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. Now, when Job was dwelling in peace and prosperity, yonder in the land of us, and things were going so well with him, and he was living in the lap of luxury, and everyone was saying, My, I tell you, he's certainly having it wonderful. Job says at that very moment that I was sitting in the lap of luxury, I dreaded, I was afraid that this thing that's happened to me might come to me. And I think that's the fear today of a great many people. Fear that something terrible is going to happen to them. And therefore, we grab for the blanket instead of grabbing for the Savior. Most of us ought to be using a Bible for our blanket and not be turning today to other things. Need to rest upon the Word of God. And this man Job says, Finally, I was not in safety. Neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. Troubles come to him now. And this man, you almost get the impression here that at the very beginning he's lost his faith, but he actually hasn't. This is a complaint. This is the bitter complaint of a man that's now tasting the dregs that are in the bottom of the cup of life, of trouble that has come upon him and he doesn't understand at all why it should come. Now, friends, as we come today to the fourth chapter of the book of Job, there are his three friends. They're sitting there. They've been sitting for seven days, and they've been wagging their head. They've been, you know, mm-hmm, you finally got caught up with. Well, 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 it finally came to you. And so Job could take everything else, but he can't take this from his friends. And so he broke out in this monologue of complaint, of whining. And it's tremendous, but it does not have the answer at all. It is black pessimism. Now his three friends are going to begin to talk to him. And the first one will be Eliphaz. And he will speak to Job, and then Job will answer him. And then Bildad, the second one, and Job will answer him. And then Zophar will speak, and Job will answer him. Now, I'm going to give just a pen picture of these men as we look at the discourse of Eliphaz. But to me, it's quite interesting, the meaning of these men's name. Eliphaz means God is strength, or God is fine gold. And he gives three speeches here. And we'll see the background of this man and what he has in mind. Then Bildad, and his name means he's a son of contention. He's a mean one, by the way. Actually, he's brutal and blunt and crude in his method. His name means son of contention. And then Zophar means a sparrow. That means he twitters. And he's got a mean tongue also. He makes terrible insinuations to Job. And we are now going to see a dialogue take place that's a real contest. And these friends of Job have gathered. They're actually going to make an attack upon him, and he's going to respond. This is what you'd call intellectual athletics. And this was the thing that was popular in that day. Today, people go to a football game. 
or to a baseball game or to a basketball game or to ice hockey or to something else that is athletic, where the physical is demonstrated. Now, way back in these early days, they gathered for intellectual contests. And by the time that these men are getting underway in this dialogue that's taking place, a great crowd had gathered around listening to what was taking place. And we are going to see that one in that crowd, by the name of Elihu, a little later, He's going to step out. He's a young man, and he will be the last speaker. But he's the only one. Now, this is therefore a great contest, and there's a great crowd there to listen in. Now, you can understand, this was way back yonder when people weren't civilized, and they put the emphasis on intellectual. Now, today we're civilized, and we've advanced so far, we put the emphasis on the physical today. But that's just because... We're so superior to these people, of course. Now, I want you to listen to this, because this man Job now has just broken out with a complaint. It's a sad thing. And he's in the deepest, blackest pessimism that a man can be in. And the devil has stripped him of everything. He has nothing to lean on, no place to turn And even God seems very far removed from him at this particular time. Now, Eliphaz is the first one to speak. And we probably ought to say a word concerning each one of these men. We gave last time the meaning of their names. Eliphaz means God is strength. Now, this man, Eliphaz, is actually the voice of experience. He's a remarkable man, and he's had a remarkable, strange, and mysterious experience. And the key to what he has to say is found down in verse 8. He says, "...even as I have seen." And everything that he has to say rests upon that. He is the voice of experience. And he'd had, as we're going to see, some remarkable dreams and visions... And he heard secrets that nobody else has ever had. Now, listen to him, because he is an outstanding man. There's no question about that. Verse 1, chapter 4, the book of Job. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we assay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? Now, he begins in a rather diplomatic sort of way. You have a feeling he's got his tongue in his cheek. This is sort of a false politeness. But nevertheless, he begins like that. He says to Job, do you mind if I say something? And he says, but who can withhold himself from speaking? Regardless of whether you mind me saying something, I'm going to say it. And he does. Now he says, behold, thou hast instructed many... And thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was fallen. And thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it's come upon thee, and thou fainest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. He says here to Job, In the old days, when you were in prosperity and plenty, and in good health, you were a tower of strength, everybody else. You could advise them, and you could speak to them, and you could tell them what to do. And you knew how to help those that were in trouble. But now, the thing has happened to you, and you have folded up. You're just a paper doll. You're just a paper tiger. You weren't actually real at all. And the advice that you gave to others, can't you follow it yourself? Now, I would say today that That's the problem a great many of us have. Isn't it interesting? We can always tell the other person how he should do it and what he should do when trouble comes to him. The psychiatrist, the psychologist, is very good at that sort of thing. And I know some of them, and some of these that are my friends think I'm picking on their profession, and I guess I am. But I know several of them that I think that they ought to see a psychiatrist. I heard about two of them that met one day 
And one looked at the other and says, you are fine. How am I? May I say to you, always analyzing the other fellow, always telling the other man. And Job was an expert, according to Eliphaz, in that sort of thing. And in a very sarcastic manner, he says, now it's happened to you. What's happened? You fold it up. Now, will you notice here, and I'm begin reading at verse 6 again, is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Isn't your own advice good enough for you? It helped others. Now, it ought to help you. Now, here is his little insinuation. He does it in a polite way. And when we get down to these other two friends, they are much more blunt. In fact, we find out that the last friend, old Zophar, is rather crude indeed. But listen to him here. Verse 7, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished, being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? I've heard that quoted today. And that's not accurate, friends. That's this fellow, Eliphaz, making a little insinuation to Job. He says, evidently, there is a chink in your armor. You have an Achilles heel. Now, this wouldn't have happened to you if there hadn't been something radically wrong in your life that you've been keeping secret. That's exactly what he's saying here at this particular time. It's a little insinuation, and it's not true of Job. We know already God gave us this at the beginning, the scene in heaven, that we might understand Job as we go through this book, and that is wrong. Now, I said at the beginning the reason that these men were miserable comforters was just simply because, first of all, they did not understand God, and they didn't understand Job. And they didn't understand themselves, actually. And that is the reason today that so many that are actually attempting to deal with spiritual matters are not qualified to deal with spiritual matters. And that's one of the reasons, very candidly, I'm always reluctant to counsel folk. Because my feeling is that, to begin with, If a person is a child of God, unless it is a technical matter and a theological matter or some physical difficulty, that it can be settled between the soul and God. We don't need to go to the third person. After all, we have an intercessor with God. Job cried out for a daysman, an intercessor. And today we're told we have that. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, he's the one that a great many Christians ought to be going to instead of a minister or to a psychologist. And if it's physical, well, go to the doctor. Then go to God also. And I found out, and I can say also as Eliphaz did as the voice of experience, I know from experience it works, friends, that God does hear and answer prayer relative to your physical condition and relative to your spiritual condition. It's wonderful now to see the way that God will deal with Job before he's through with him. But this man's not going to be very helpful to him. Now, listen to him, because he speaks from a very high pulpit, and he's looking down at Job when he says this, verse 8, "...even as I have seen..." They that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Now, that's a dirty little thing to say to Job. He says, Job, come on out with it. (laughs) Evidently, there's something in your life that you haven't told us. Let's hear it. And he goes on. He says, by the blast of God, they perish. And by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. And even with God's own children, he doesn't destroy them, never does that. He disciplines them, but he never destroys them. And this man is wrong, you see, and you can be so wrong today in giving advice. Very candidly, I 
afraid there are too many today that are dear Abbeys. They can tell you how you ought to do it. And they can say it in a pretty nice way. They can phrase it with very attractive language. But it may not be accurate. Now will you notice the roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perisheth for lack of prey, and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. Now, what this man is saying here is that the old lions are no longer able to stalk their prey. And those who sow evil seed, they're going to reap evil harvests. And they're going to perish like the young lions that have broken teeth and like the old lions that can no longer stalk their prey. Now, he's saying, Job, you're in the hands of one whose justice is unquestionable. And he says, this thing was impressed on me because I had a vision. I had a dream. And believe me, here's a man with a dream. And let's listen to it. Because I tell you, it makes your hair stand on end when you find out about this dream. Verse 12, and this is very mysterious. And friends, it's going to make your hair stand on end. Listen to this. Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof. Oh, draw closer now. Cup your ear, because we don't want to miss a thing of what's happening here now. Listen to him. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on man. Why, I tell you, this is blood-curdling. It took place at night. It is in the dark. And he's had a vision. He says, Fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Oh, tell me more, Eliphaz. But you're scaring me to death. (laughs) You're frightening me. My, what happened? Oh, he's not through. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. Ah, that was frightening, wasn't it? And now notice, verse 16, It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence. And I heard a voice saying, Oh, tell me more. This, this, my friend, is going to be something Nobody's ever heard before. This is something nobody ever knew before. Because this man's had a vision. He's seen things. He's had a dream. It was dark. And the Spirit passed before him. Will you listen to him? Now, what was it? Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? I don't know about you. I'm a little disappointed. I thought that if a man's going to have the experience this man had, that he's really going to come up with something that'll be profound and something that none of us ever heard of before. This is nothing new. And very frankly, I think that he really exercised himself a little bit too much to come up with so little. It's sort of like the prophet. The prophet says that the mountain conceived and traveled and brought forth a mouse. May I say to you, I think that's what Eliphaz did. He's in great travail here. And you think he's going to give birth to a great idea, a great statement, a profound truth. He comes up with this. It's a mountain bringing forth a little mouse. It's not very much worthwhile. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Well, of course not. What's so profound about that? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Well, of course not. Any of us know that. We didn't have to have a dream and a frightening thing like this, a nightmare that caused us to miss a night's sleep. And I don't think that it's quite worth a night's sleep at all to come up with something that is so trite, so evident. There's nothing profound here at all. But this is the voice of experience, and there are a lot of folks with voices of experience today. I'm in a very difficult spot myself. I'm a retired preacher, and retired preachers can become a nuisance. They can give advice, especially to young preachers. From the time I entered the ministry, I had retired preachers coming up and putting their arm around me and say, Now, son, this is the way you should be doing it. And the interesting thing is, most of those brethren never did do it. And I find myself now in that unique position of wanting to put my arm 
around some young preacher. And I found myself this morning, before I came down here to the study to make this tape, I met a young man in the ministry, and he's candidating in a church I recommend him to. And before I could even think, I found myself telling him how he ought to do it. And I just finally bit my tongue, got back in my car and told him I'd pray for him and left it there. My, I tell you, there's a danger of the voice of experience. And sometimes it's not just what you want. He's not helpful to Job. Eliphaz is not helpful to Job. Now he goes on here in this manner. He says, verse 18, Behold, he put no trust in his servants and his angels. He charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay? He says that even his angels act rather foolish. And how much less these that dwell in houses of clay? And this is a profound statement coming from the very beginning. That these bodies that you and I live in are houses of clay. And there's not a better description of them than that. Paul calls them in 2 Corinthians 5 that we looked at just a few weeks ago. And Paul called these bodies we dwell in just a tent, a frail, feeble tent that the wind will blow it over and we'll have to move out of it. And he says, which are crushed before the moth, our termites get in. And before long, our houses fall in on us. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. Now, may I say this hurriedly, because I don't want to give the impression that everything that Eliphaz says and these men say are not profound not wonderful. They give many wonderful truths, but they are not helpful to Job. That's the important thing. It's so easy to give out truth that is not pertinent and is not geared in to where we live. It just doesn't get down where the rubber meets the road. And that, my friend, is the place that we need to have truth for our lives today, not just any truth but truth that meets the need. And these men are going to say many wonderful things. I enjoy reading this. I hope you do. But it doesn't get down to meet the need of Job. You feel like stopping them and saying, Oh, don't talk any farther because you've gone down the wrong road. You are tooling down pretty fast on a road that's a dead-end street. You're not going to help this man with what you're saying. But he's going to say some wonderful things, and we're going to listen to him. Now, as we come to chapter 5, and I'll just get into this, he says, "...call now, if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn?" That's still a good question. Which one can you turn to to help you? I'm afraid that they're not able to help you today. And apparently the patriarchs had already gone on at this time. Probably Abraham and Isaac had. Maybe Jacob was still living. But Abraham's not able to help you. (laughs) And Isaac's not able to help you. And no one that lived in the past can help you. Well, which saint are you going to turn to? For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. I've seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. He says, I've seen the foolish, the wicked, prosper. But finally, they're brought down. And that, by the way, is true. You find that in Psalms. David was troubled by the same thing. He said, I saw the wicked spreading himself like a green bay tree. Why, he was prosperous, while godly men were not. And I wondered about it. And then David says, I watched, and I found out finally God brought the wicked down. Took God a long time to get rid of Hitler, didn't it? But now it doesn't seem it was so long. But if you lived during that time, you would have thought it long. And Stalin, in fact, communism is still with us. Why doesn't God move? Oh, he doesn't have to. He moves slowly. And God will bring it down, but give him time. He's got eternity ahead of him. Of course, we don't have very much time in this life. Now, he goes on. He says, "...his children are far from safety. They're crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. 
In other words, he's classifying this man Job as being a foolish man, actually. And he says, "...whose harvest the hungry eateth up, and taketh it even out of the thorns, and the robber swalloweth up their substance. Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground." Now, that is a great truth. It just doesn't happen to be pertinent for Job. It's like a lady getting a recipe to make a meatloaf, and she really wants to make an apple pie. Now, it's nice to have a recipe for meatloaf, and meatloaf's all right in its place, but I've never myself found a place for it. But she really wanted to make an apple pie. That's what she was after. And I would say the recipe for meatloaf's no good. What this man's saying is good. It's a recipe for meatloaf when you really need apple pie, and that's what Job needs. Now, he says in verse 7, "...yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward." Now, you don't have to pour that into a test tube to find out that it's true, that man's born unto trouble. I don't think it's debatable that the human family has adversity, calamity, sorrow, distress, anxiety, worry, disturbance. And all you have to do is pick up your paper and you read a partial report of the human family. And news today is about fires, accidents, tragedies, wars, rumors of wars. Very little good news, by the way. All has to do with the trouble that this human family has seen. And no one knows the trouble I've seen. Well, everyone knows, because they've had the same trouble. All people have trouble. Not all are of the same race. Not all have the same color. Not all are the same size or the same sex. And not all have the same IQ. But somebody says, well, the Scripture says they're all one blood. That's true, but it's not the same type of blood. None are exempt, are immune, or can get inoculation from trouble. Tears are a universal language. Not all shed blood, but all shed tears. In fact, this word sympathy means to suffer together. And that's the human symphony today, the suffering of mankind. In fact, the Bible word for man is enosh. Enosh. And Enosh means the miserable. That's man. Nothing sure, we're told, but death and taxes. Well, we can add one more to that and make a trio. Trouble. That's sure. And sparks fly upward according to a universal law, the law of thermodynamics. It isn't by chance or luck. Actually, what happens is that the updraft caused by heat on a cool night and a fire outside, and the sparks, they start upward. And they move because of that law. Now, basically, trouble, suffering, and sin are the result of disobedience to God. And there's no peace, says my God, to the wicked. And today, man's tried to build a utopia in sin. Won't work. You can't have a millennium without the Prince of Peace. And... Therefore, you'll not have peace without him. But they're trying to make peace without him. And therefore, trouble comes to man today. And the righteous do suffer. And the children of God have trouble, and they're not immune. Now, sometimes trouble comes to a child of God because of some stupid blunder. A woman told me once, says, my husband is my cross. He's not your cross. I don't care how bad he is. He may be an alcoholic, but you see, you're the one that said yes. That was your stupid blunder. That wasn't the cross. Cross is something you take up gladly, my friend. Now, sometimes trouble is a judgment of the father upon the child. We're told if we'd judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. But if we don't, he'll judge you. Now, sometimes trouble is a discipline of the Father. We're told in Scripture, the one whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And that's the thing that Moses, who was living the life of Riley, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. 
There was a discipline for that man Moses, and God had never used him as a deliverer. He hadn't had 40 years training down in the desert of Midian. And then Saul of Tarsus, a proud young Pharisee, and he says, I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer. And then God put him through the mill. Trouble is a discipline of the Father. And then sometimes it teaches us to be patient and to trust God. And then sometimes trouble comes because God is putting sandpaper on us to smooth the rough edges. And Job will come to that in this book of Job. He says, "...he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I'll come forth as fine gold." He saw God was putting sandpaper on him to smooth him down. And then sometimes God permits trouble to come to us to get our minds and hearts fastened on him. And that is an explanation, I think, for many of us today. So there's a reason, friends, for trouble coming to the child of God. And therefore, this man's accurate here when he says, "...yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward." Now, I move on, verse 8 of chapter 5 of Job. "...I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number." who giveth rain upon the earth, and sendeth waters upon the fields, to set up on high those that be low, that those which mourn may be exalted to safety. He disappointeth the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grow in the noontime as in the night. But he saveth the poor from the sowed, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. Now, what he's saying here, and he's saying it really in a beautiful way, is that God is faithful, and God is good, and God is just. That's the thing that he's saying. Well, that's true. But that doesn't reach the root of the problem of this man Job. He's not talking to Job, actually. Now, verse 17, he says, "...behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty." And I've heard that verse quoted again and again. Now, somebody says, but isn't it true? Yes. But this was given as a personal dig against Job. And that doesn't always explain the reason that God's people suffer. We've gone over a list here, and there are several reasons. And sometimes you can use this as a little dagger to put in the heart of some friend and say, what's happening is you're wrong. God's correcting you. Well, that could be, but it may not be. And who are you? Have you just telephoned into heaven and the Lord's let you in on something? Some people speak ex-cathedra, and they're not even the Pope. They think that they have the last word. Well, my friend, you can't speak always into the problem of someone else. And then someone else can't always speak into your problem either. Now, verse 18, "...for he maketh sower, and bindeth up, he woundeth, and his hands make whole." What a wonderful picture of God, and it is a picture of him. He shall deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven, there shall no evil touch thee. And he mentions, you see, six, and then you'll notice that occurs in the book of Proverbs. And it's not just a poetic expression. It means seven is actually not necessarily the number of perfection. It's always the number of completeness. The seventh day was the end of one week. One week had come to an end. And actually, seven is the number of completeness. And so this is the total spectrum of the trouble of man. Now, he'll deliver you in seven of these. Here they are. In famine, he shall redeem thee from death. Two, and in war, from the power of the sword. Three, thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. And by the way, that one is one of the worst. Thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. Gossips. 
More people are hurt today by gossips. There have been more people slain in the past few days in this country by the tongue than have ever been killed in war. My, I tell you, we need to pray that God deliver us from the evil tongue. I know a woman. She was a member of my church. And I always prayed. I said, oh, God, don't let her hit me with that tongue. And I tell you, I found out she did, but I don't think she ever hurt very much. But it was a mean one. That is something. Thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. Fourth, neither shalt thou be afraid of destruction when it cometh. That is the typhoon, the tornado, the storm. When I was a boy, I spent half my life in West Texas down in the storm cellar, especially in the spring. I always liked it because the neighbors came in and they put on pallets, and we kids, we lay down on the floor in the storm cellar. But he'll deliver you. He expects you to go to the storm cellar. Then he says here, five, at destruction and famine thou shalt lie. And today, where the gospel is gone, it doesn't mean that people have accepted it because they haven't. But it's interesting where the gospel is gone and still goes is the prosperous areas of this world. They are the ones that are the haves. I don't think that's an accident. And instead maybe of carrying rice to India, and I shouldn't say instead of, but why not in every bag of rice we put a little prize like they used to put in a box of popcorn and let that prize be a few Bibles because blessing attends that. Thou shalt laugh at famine and destruction. And six, neither shalt thou be afraid of the beasts of the earth. And I'm not afraid of them because they're all down here in cages in the zoo. I'm not afraid of them. For thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with thee. And thou shalt know that thy tabernacle shall be in peace, and thou shalt visit thy habitation, and shall not sin. Thou shalt know also that thy seed shall be great, and thine offering is the grass of the earth. Thou shalt come to thy grave in a full age, like as a shock of corn cometh in in his season, and that's death. Now he speaks of death, not as Job did, as being some awful, hideous monster, but something that you welcome. There's a leveling out in death. Now he says, Lo, this, we've searched it, so it is. Hear it, and know thou it for thy good. Now that is the first discourse of Eliphaz. And you can see that it has not met the need of Job. It hasn't touched him. And this man, Job, now is dismayed. In fact, the matter is, he's alarmed, and he cries out now in pity. He cries out for mercy. He cries out for help, because his friend didn't help him any. Oh, listen to him now. This is Job. Again, this is a plaintive plea that he makes. But Job answered and said, this is chapter 6, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words are swallowed up. Job says, I can't even tell you how terrible my grief is. I can't explain to you this awful thing that has happened to me. Now, you can see this man has not helped him at all. Just to tell him you got some secret sin and thing for you to do, boy, is to confess, get right. And that, my friend, is not always the thing to say. May I inject this here? I see this today and. I'm sure it's done by those who mean well. I see it on bumper stickers. Christ is the answer. Now, may I say to you, he is the answer. Well, what's the question? Now, if the question is, what must I do to be saved? Then Christ is the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, if the question is, 
I'm going down to the market today, and I wonder what kind of meat I ought to have. Should I have ground round, or should I have maybe chicken? What should I have? I don't think he's got the answer for that one. My feeling is that when you say Christ is the answer, let's make sure that we know what the question is first. And that is the thing that Job is trying to get through to us now. He says, my grief is sad, that I want an answer. My grief needs an answer. And just to come along and say Christ is the answer, you haven't given me the handle yet. You haven't told me. You need to recognize what my question is. And this man hasn't been able to fathom. Eliphaz, he missed the point altogether. Now, he said a lot of nice things, good things. And it's sort of like they said of President Coolidge. He didn't say very much, but what he said was generally worth listening to. He went to church one day, came home, and his wife, who'd been ill, didn't go. And she said to him, Did you hear a good sermon today? He said, yes. What did the preacher preach on? He said, sin. Well, what did he say? Well, he was against it. My friend, may I say to you that we need, frankly, a little better answer than that. Job needs more than what's been given to him. Now, listen to him. He's crying out. Now, he's like a wounded animal. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. And then he says, Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass? Or loweth the ox over his fodder? Job says, I'm crying out, and you can see my misery, and you show no pity at all. I wouldn't be crying out. You're acting as if I'm not in trouble. And... When a little old long-eared donkey is out in the field and he's eating grass, he's not braying for something to eat. And Job says, I'm not crying out because there's nothing that is hurting me. I'm hurting and he's hurting bad. Now, will you notice this? Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? And that's pretty tasteless, is it not? The things that my soul refused to touch are as my sorrowful meat. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me. Now, he's hit bottom, friends. He's got no help anywhere. He actually now questions the justice of God. Oh, if God would only destroy me, get rid of me that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. He wants to die. Now, he's miserable. Then should I yet have comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should hope? And what is mine end that I should prolong my life? I have anything to live for. That's what he's saying. Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh of brass? He said, I'm weary. I can't stand anymore. The pressure's too great. Is not my help in me, and is wisdom driven quite from me? Now listen to his cry. Oh, what a cry. To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friend. But he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. My friend should have shown pity to me, should have sympathized with me, but he didn't. And then he says here, verse 15, My brethren have dealt deceitfully as a brook and as the stream of brooks that pass away. Now, what he's saying is this, and this is beautiful poetic language. Job says, When I looked down the road and saw my three friends coming, I said, Oh, thank God, here come my friends. They'll understand me. They'll sympathize with me. They didn't. They came here and immediately began to shake their heads. They began to find fault. And what was it then I saw? I thought I saw an oasis on the desert. And what I saw was a mirage. That's the language here. I didn't see reality. I saw nothing but a mirage out there on the desert. What a picture we have here that this man Job gives to us now. Listen to the plaintive cry. 
of Job. And I'm not sure, but what it's the cry today of the human predicament, man today. Man with all of his gadgets. Oh, how lonesome he is, and how restless he is, and how unhappy he is, and how miserable he is. He's certainly Enosh. He's the miserable one. He needs something more than gadgets. He needs God. Then he goes on in his complaint here that his brethren actually have misunderstood that they are not evaluating the situation as it is. And he speaks of the fact that he thought that they would be warm to him, but they vanish away. What time they wax warm, they vanish. That's verse 17. When it is hot, they're consumed out of their place. And then he speaks of the fact that there are eyes. It is all deceitful. It's like a pool that's covered over with snow, but ice beneath it that's holding it up. And if you step on it, why, you fall. That's the type of friends they've turned out to be. And then he goes on to say, if you have something to tell me, tell me and teach me. I'm teachable. In verse 24 here, he says, teach me and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand wherein I've erred. And then he says, how forcible are right words. But what doth your arguing reprove? He said, what you've said is good, but doesn't touch my case at all. You're not speaking to me. You are not diagnosing my case at all. I've just heard today of somebody who went to a doctor. And the doctor diagnosed the case as arthritis. And it turned out that it was cancer. And it was too late by the time that they got in the hands of a cancer specialist to do anything for them at all. Now, that was the problem here with Job. Job said, you've come and you've attempted to diagnose my case. You've said it's one thing. It's not that. If you diagnose it accurately and you have something to say to me, why, you say it to me and I'll listen to you. You see, the problem of these men, all three of them, as we shall see, is that they did not know God, they did not know Job, and they really did not know themselves. They didn't quite understand and they all are going to assume that Job has sinned and that he is holding out, that he won't come out with it, and that what's happening to him is judgment. 